0: Hi Rob
1: <laughs> <laughs> Really solid start I think your dream of us doing a one take start one day is impossible So what was the issue that time? No, uh, lack of inspiration I just, didn't, just didn't start, didn't want to Yeah, didn't want to, I actually went back to bed <laughs> Just silence on my end for an hour <laughs> Hello Rob I think I coughed exactly when you did it. All right, I'm going to be quiet and I'm ready. (laughs) Hey, Lloyd. Hey, Rob. What's going on?
0: Not too much, my friend. What are you drinking?
1: I would lie and say I'm drinking beer, but it's morning and it's coffee.
0: I'll get one after, I promise. I believe you. Yeah, good. What are you on? I'm drinking an ice-cold, crisp, smooth Guinness. Surprised?
1: Yeah, not at all. Um, I assume you're still currently residing in Boston,
0: Massachusetts. I certainly am, as I presume you are still residing in per-earth Western Australia. Yes,
1: correct. We have not moved, and it would be silly if we did.
0: Indeed, and I think I'm right in saying that the distance is the same as it was last week, which is very far.
1: Yeah, like some stupid number of lions. So I thought I would think about it in, you know, a more glass-half-full kind of perspective okay. and in fact the distance between our friendship lloyd is only less than five percent uh 4.86 percent to be exact of the distance from earth to the moon
0: that is quite comforting actually
1: yeah so we're way closer together than we are to the moon
0: all right yeah i feel better yeah thank you
1: you don't have to traverse some many millions of lions instead you just have to get a little bit of the way To our nearest celestial body.
0: Although saying that, it has fully confirmed that I'm never going to make it to the moon. (laughs) Because you can't even get
1: to Australia.
0: (laughs) So there is no (laughs) chance of you getting
1: to the moon. No, and there's roads between us. And oceans. You've got a clear shot to the moon.
0: Yeah, I'd have to get out of Earth though. I don't have a rocket.
1: Uh, Yeah, you just got to get best friends with our mate Elon Musk. We've actually, so far, promoted space a lot. Elon. So, whenever you're ready to get on board with this.
0: Yeah, we actually 100% personality on the astronaut test, Mr. Musk. Oh, yeah. All right. Enough crap. Welcome
1: to the Unintelligent Chat Show, our weekly podcast. We're up to episode three. Lloyd,
0: how are you feeling? I am having a lot of fun unintelligently chatting about intelligent things. Excellent. All right. Let's kick it off. Lloyd, what did you learn this past week? This week, Rob, I was learning about the Welsh language. Ah, awesome. to put that in context, in 2021, so this year, it's pretty up-to-date statistics, which I wasn't expecting for Wales, uh-huh. it was reported that almost 30% of people in Wales still speak Welsh. I thought it was way less. They, they cited that as it being incredibly rare. And I read that thinking, holy shit, that's a lot of people that still speak a dying language.
1: Yeah, that's heaps. Yeah. That's exciting because you're basically first, second generation Welsh. Is that what you'd call it? Uh, I'm like
0: 90th generation Welsh. Yeah, your adorable parents are Welsh. I'm Welsh back until the beginning of time, my friend. All
1: oh, right, you're, you're the best Welsh person that ever was.
0: I'm like a bit Welsh. I think like a quarter Welsh. Uh, so th- this is fun. This is exciting for us. It is. It is. And the other exciting thing is that that's more people than spoke it in the 50s. Really? Which is surprising to me because of traditionalism and, you know, modernity destroying the world and all that. But yeah. It's it's actually prob- probably because of population growth, but still exciting that that number's going up. That's great. Cause the only
1: the only person I ever knew that spoke any proper Welsh was my Grandpa John. He would always pull it out when we were over at their place when we were kids. And I was like, that sounds dumb, Grandpa.
0: Why? Yeah, my my mum speaks a bit of Welsh. Yeah. She used to drop, drop some Welsh on us every now and again. Her favourite was Achavi, which means... Gross, disgusting. Don't be <laughs> really, don't be. Oh, she had three boys, so she used it all the time. That's hilarious. I,
1: I think I genuinely was looking up Welsh phrases, and that was one of them. Yeah, achewi, and my definition was to stop kids touching something gross or eating something dumb.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly how it was used by my mother. Highly appropriate. Yeah, thanks Shan. So surprisingly, high percentage of Welsh people speak it, yes. but because of its global scarcity, yes. The Allied forces in World War II were, I'm going to say, rumoured to have employed Welsh speakers to be code talkers. I say rumoured because it was incredibly difficult to find any actual evidence that they did this other than a single line I read.
1: I'm not sure this podcast is entirely about evidence. So I am strongly on board with this because I think that is an excellent excellent idea. Uh, Because, yeah, there's there's not a lot of people in Nazi Germany that are going to be like, oh, I know what that is. That's Welsh. Let me get my Welsh cousin.
0: Yeah, I'd argue zero. Yeah. Or if they did know a Welsh person, they'd be like, oh my God, the one Welsh person I know is in Holland right now. Yeah, damn it. Or, you know, a concentration camp because we're all terrible people. Yes, we're not pro-Nazi. This is an anti-Nazi podcast. We want that to be clear. Yeah, carry on. Yeah. So, code talkers in, in World War II, as they were known, were incredible, fascinating people. And I say that the Welsh were used, but primarily it was the American Marine Corps that used various native tribal speakers, such as the Comanche, the Hopi, the, the Navajo, mm. which I assume, especially in the 40s, the languages they spoke would have been even more scarce on continental Europe.
1: Yeah. I mean, it would be like Australian Army using any of the large number of you know, local indigenous dialects in Australia. No no one knows. No one knows
0: that. No, there would be no reason for Nazi German officers to know Navajo. <laughs> so Navajo and Comanche, the languages were so rare and so unheard of mm. on continental Europe that they didn't even have to use code a lot of the time. Sometimes for important but not top secret messages, they could just say the message and it would have get got through because it's gibberish. Yeah, having a chat but they did have a second layer of coding, which was the, the type 2 code called a substitution cipher, mm. where they would associate, a, for example, a Navajo word with a letter of the alphabet. Yep. So then they would spell it out, each word, using those words. So even if someone on the other end, on the Nazi side, could speak Navajo, yeah. all they'd hear was a mishmash of... Nouns and verbs, it wouldn't make any sense. They'd have to have the cipher.
1: It would be great to translate some of those and just be like, wow, that makes no sense. <laughs> breakfast. I got nothing. That was the first word, and that was it. Did you just finish eating breakfast, Rob? Shut up.
0: Uh, uh, breakfast, bagel, coffee, you know, normal words. Computer, doghouse. <laughs> that would be a great code. Computer, doghouse. Yeah, that sounds fun. Yeah. <laughs>
1: That's where my computer goes when he's naughty. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> Sorry Carry on We have we have so limited time Oh my god Okay So the only way that Nazis would be able to break that code Is if they had the code book But the reports of the Native Americans during World War II Are unbelievably positive of the, the amount of work they put in And mm. um, how many lives they saved When they trained They trained by memorizing these code books In the US at their training grounds And then being put under immense stress And having to recall them so, these codebooks never left the the training grounds. Oh. There's none on the front lines. So, if they got captured, or, it's all in their head. So, there's no way they could have had a codebook.
1: Yeah, that's like, we're getting down the realms of real secret spy stuff.
0: Yeah. And I actually did some more digging. I wanted to know if any native tribes people mm. fought for the Axis Alliance, if there were anyone fighting for the Nazis. Oh, what a weird... Oh, no, that makes sense to see if they had any speakers. Ah. Right. How do you even check that? So, I looked as hard as I could and yeah. I couldn't find a single person that fought for the Germans. What I did hear is that the Iroquois people, they actually declared war on Germany yeah, they did. in World War I. Oh. And they never withdrew that declaration. <laughs> so, when World War II kicked off, they were like hell yeah <laughs> finally take us to the front lines their volunteer rate was like 70 percent are you serious of men aged 18 to 44 i think it was so so they had a, an ongoing grudge that they were pretty psyched to settle yeah i mean I, I this this is anecdotal and not based on any googling but i think they were one of the more warmongering and border expanding tribes you know they they kind of yeah took pride in finding their manhood through war yeah right Kicking it old school. I thought that was badass. And considering the white Americans, their volunteer rate was about, I've seen numbers from 42 to 52%. Of eligible young men. Of eligible young men. So 70% is crazy high. That's ridiculous. To continue that theme, the average Native American volunteer rate was a About 33%. Yeah, right. Which just looked at that at face value, and I was like, okay, it's less than white Americans. And then I did some digging, and I mean, Native Americans historically have been treated like trash. I think it's Native anyone in a white country, right? Yeah, 100% yeah and there was even a quote i read from a newspaper article in 1941 mm. that said the policy of de-indianizing uh, the indian people is back in fashion oh no i mean they're put on reservations where water was being shut off schools were being closed and they still had a 33 percent voluntary which yeah. is, is kind of insane to me it's amazing
1: it's wild there must be
0: stories of all native american units I no that's actually interesting. Really? So there were there were black units, they were segregated yeah. from the white units. Native Americans were in the white units, which is strange considering their mistreatment racially. They were just in the white units. Oh, so they were spread out. Yeah. But by the end of the war they were assigned American bodyguards because of an incident where they were captured by American Marines on the Pacific Islands thinking that they were Japanese really? you know, uh, mistreated. Oh, and man. then The Americans like, actually, they're super important to us surviving the war.
1: That is terrible. (laughs) But this is, well, the 40s, right? So I guess it doesn't surprise me right back to the beginning that there were no Native Americans that happened to be living in Germany when war broke out and were either enslaved or volunteered on the German side. That's, I guess that's not surprising when you think about it.
0: This is what, 80 years ago. Right. I can't imagine they had a ton of access to hop on a ship and, or a plane and make their way to Germany. Or would even want to when they're, they're all being put on reservations and all
1: that jazz. No fun.
0: Yeah, they had bigger fish to fry.
1: Yeah. God, fried fish. Delicious. <laughs> what? Wow, what a slew of randomly interesting and related facts. That's amazing. Do
0: you have something interesting to add?
1: Uh, like a little bit. Hit me. Like you said, there's not a lot of strong evidence that Welsh was used by Code Talkers, which, I, by the way, I think is a great name. I amazing. Didn't know they were just called Code Talkers. Yeah. But I did read a story in Roussel in the Netherlands in 1944. Oh, that
0: was my next fact. Ah, too late. I'm stealing it. Go. You better
1: tell it well. I'll try. What I read was that there was some Royal Welsh soldiers? Yep. Is that what you call we- Welch? Is that right? It sounds wrong.
0: Yeah, I, I didn't look into it. I just accepted that that was like an old English way of describing Welsh.
1: Yeah. Anyway, as I remember, they've assaulted this like important town. So we're in 1944. So we're on the road to Berlin here. And then they took this church in a bunch of heavy fighting. I assume probably somewhere in the center of this village. But then they were stuck in the church because their kind of way out was this like death alley kind of crossfire area. And if they all ran out in there, they'd all just get cut down and, and killed. So the captain or, or commander or whoever's in charge decided that they should use Welsh as a way to communicate. So as they could, when it got to nighttime, they could all just kind of sneak out in twos and threes and be able to communicate without the Germans knowing what was going on.
0: That's pretty much what I read. It was pretty cool.
1: That's the only story I found of like... Welsh language in World War Two.
0: <laughs> yeah, that was definitely the most fleshed out story I found because I think that whole story was written in a newspaper. Yeah, okay. I found references to Welsh commanders and Welsh units doing the same thing. Yeah. So this town in Holland, Ro- Roysel? Roysel? Yeah, whichever sounds better. Did you find out the hilarious reason why they're kind of famous in Holland? No. So one of the largest like ancestry softwares in Holland... Uh-huh had an error in their software that identified a road in this town. This uh, road is called like Holland Town Road or something. <laughs> great name. Their software misidentified that road as Holland in its entirety. So there are thousands of families <laughs> with multiple generations that all claim heritage from this tiny town. <laughs> That's hilarious. Yeah, okay. That's great. <laughs> Uh, but th- this town, to this day, still celebrate the Welsh soldiers. Really? So they have a civilian graveyard that has seven military grave sites in it from the war, three of mm. which belong to the Welsh soldiers from that battle. Oh, okay. And every year they put wreaths on the-, the Welsh soldiers' graves as a way to say thank you, and they- apparently they're still held in very high regard. That's
1: awesome. Go Wales. Go Welch. The Welch. The Welch. The, the Royal Welch. Maybe it's only Welsh when there's Royal in front of it.
0: Maybe. Probably could have Googled it, but...
1: Yeah. So, so after that, I was like, well, what about just other fun Wales things to do with World War Two? And I found what is probably an excellent source, and maybe we'll verify your original learning. It's a book called Welshness, Welsh Soldiers, and the Second World War. It sounds like it covers the whole lot. Uh, wow, well, that's great. Yeah, it's not available online. So, oh, I think the first chapter was there, but I didn't read it, so... <laughs> That's not- Why would you? Yeah, exactly. I mean, it started off all very, you know, it's the general gist of the book, no specific fun, exciting stories. And it seemed to suggest that during the Great War or during World War II, there was a great sense of unity and, you know, Britishness as they overcame the
0: Nazis, uh, but potentially to the detriment of Welshness. Interesting that you should mention that because I'm currently reading a book called The History of Wales. Nice. I was- up to the very end of the Roman occupation. So oh. not close to World War II. Not even. But I skipped ahead to World War II to see if I could find some, some tidbits. Mm. And um, a, a huge part of it was a lot of people in Wales and a lot of Welsh members of Parliament, they said that they shouldn't be forced to fight just because the English are fighting. Oh. And that's not to say that we don't want to fight or that we won't fight. We just want it to be our choice as Welsh people, whether we fight or not. And uh, oh. a lot of people, so there's conscientious objectors to war. And yeah, of course. there there have been laws written to say that you can't be punished for conscientiously objecting to okay. the fighting. But if you object on a political basis, then you can be charged, arrested, and put in jail. Oh. So this was a, a huge moment in Welsh history where they were saying, a lot of people said, I don't want to fight because I don't believe in the war, and they were mm-hmm. fine. That had a, a really small percentage of people got convicted. Yeah, And then other people said, I don't want to fight because politically, I don't think Wales should be forced to fight. And that had a much higher percentage of people who were put in jail. Yeah, But what was great for Wales is that that percentage was lower than it was for the same belief system in World War One. So it was a sort of the beginning of the acceptance that, okay, as the Welsh people can make their own decisions. That is interesting.
1: That's basically at odds with what I read. But that's me reading or skimming the first two paragraphs of the one chapter of this book. So maybe it resulted in, uh, maybe there was a different conclusion at the end.
0: Well, I don't I don't think that the if you looked at it on its own, Wales would count it as a win for independence. But I think it was a potential turning point in the conversation.
1: Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's also about that would have been a a relatively large era of globalization, because everyone's listening and watching the news following the war all over the world. And obviously, there's lots of troop movements, people moving all over the world. And I guess like, they sent like lots of kids and elderly out of the main centers in in UK into rural areas, which would have included into
0: Wales. So you would have a bunch of English people living in Wales as well. So lots of mixing. Yeah, a lot of people moved to Wales on the outbreak of the war because of the fear of the bombing raids. Yeah. Um, Thinking that Wales was far enough west that they wouldn't be impacted. And then Cardiff and Swansea were bombed. And Swansea got one of the worst raids in the war in a three-day blitz that was like 300 people died. Really? And then everyone was like, oh, okay. And Wales was like, we fucking told you, you idiots, (laughs) all you English people that moved here.
1: (laughs) You idiots. Yeah, right. Yeah, I guess you always hear about the, the London bombings the blitz yeah I, th- yeah I i have to imagine the london one was worse yeah because london but, um, is london but yeah but other places yeah. also got bombed anyway that's enough uh, i've got a couple of interesting welsh war facts that i want to relay to you if that's cool drop it on me <laughs> no it'll hurt so turns out somewhere uh in north wales there's a whole american p38 lightning fighter buried at the beach and Oh, that is so cool. Right. I immediately thought back to visiting my grandparents in Swansea in Wales. And we used to go to some of the beaches near them. And, like, I think it's a UK thing, but like Welsh beaches, just like enormous, grand cliffs, large amounts of sand. And I always used to think they were the coolest things ever. And at one of them we went to, there was the ribs or the shell of like an old rowboat or something, not a big boat. And I thought that was the coolest thing ever. Imagine if you'd accidentally dug up an entire fighter plane
0: I've just googled a picture of it And How it's cool one of it? the coolest things
1: I've ever seen Right, but it's protected um, You're not allowed to touch it And it's buried under like two or three feet of, of sand And I think it's only been like exposed Such as you see in the pictures A couple of times since the war You know, due to tides or storms or whatever Oh, that's even cooler Right? Oh, God, it'd be so good and it's just like left there to be preserved by the sand, I guess. I mean, the picture is so cool, right? So oh, imagine discovering that. Anyway, I'm sure there's heaps of things like that scattered all over all over mainland Europe.
0: Yeah, that just—I mean, there's they're still discovering unexploded bombs in
1: oh, the UK. And even I think I read on the news a few weeks ago, some guy in Germany had a whole Tiger tank in his backyard <laughs> underground. <laughs> no, like he just he had it. Since sometime after the war He must have bought it And it's just in his backyard I think he was like Not trying to hide it And he had a bunch of other war paraphernalia as well Like he was a collector And then at some point Probably during some program That the, the Germans are doing Or have been doing since the war They were like You can't have this We're going to come pick it up and So the news article was like This guy had a term- tiger tank And now the government have taken it I'm sure it was probably worth a fortune as probably, well Probably, yeah uh, But it was like intact it probably didn't drive, but it wasn't like a, a wreck.
0: That's so... I mean, he could he could descend in it, have a cup of tea. Yeah.
1: On it, in it, around it. Anyway, I'm going to keep, Amazingly gonna keep cool. pushing on. There was a Welsh homeless guy that died in London that played a, an excellent part in the war effort. Did you read about this guy?
0: I didn't. It sounds oh. very sad.
1: Oh, but also great. I'm going to try and pronounce... So the, the article started off with, for example, if it was me, it would be like, Perth man, Robert Thomas did this. But it's Welsh. So it's Aberbargoed man, Glyndwer Michael. I think you nailed it. Yeah, maybe. He was homeless. He was in London at the time and he died because he, I don't know, ate a poisoned rat or something. Oh, And God. so he was identified by the Secret Service or Special Operations or whatever. <laughs> and used in operation mincemeat
0: <laughs> oh i do know this story Ah,
1: uh, really yeah so he was declared dead as major william martin he was like dressed as a soldier and given a briefcase with like secret papers in it loaded onto a submarine and then like dropped somewhere near spain to wash up on a beach as a dead guy as if he'd been in a plane crash or something uh, and his secret papers were like spilling the beans on an invasion of sardinia and greece by the allies and it went All the way up to Hitler, like all the way up the Nazi chain of command to Hitler, fooled them all. And so they diverted critical troops from Russia to guard, you know, Greece and Sardinia. And in the meantime, the Allies just like quietly took Sicily to start their push up the Italian (sighs) peninsula.
0: Like so good.
1: What a hero in death. (laughs) Uh,
0: I, I hope there's some way that he witnessed that and he took some solace. Yeah. But like ah
1: such a great scheme.
0: And the last one was
1: that allegedly there was a Welsh spy who potentially inspired the whole James Bond narrative. Wow. Isn't that exciting? So his name is What a Legacy. Yeah. Slightly easier to pronounce. And by reading it, I get the feeling we're both related to him and hence super spies. Forrest Frederick Edward Yeo Thomas.
0: It's definitely that means that we're related by that token.
1: Good thing we're not getting married. Um, So, (laughs) this guy was part of the Special Operations Executive, I don't know, some secret mob, and he did a bunch of missions into Nazi territory in France in, like, the late 40s to kind of deal with the French resistance and and keep track of their movements and stuff. But I think at some point one of his, like, buddies got trapped or, or captured, so he mounted a risky mission to go and rescue him, but was betrayed, captured, imprisoned, and tortured, and then eventually made a daring escape got back to friendly territory, earned himself a George cross. And there's evidence that Ian Fleming, the author of James Bond, was like really interested in his story. And there's also records that Yeo Thomas's kind of, he basically acted like the modern day Bond. He was like a little bit of a womanizer at the time. He's very suave, did lots of like things that we would consider movie spy things, but he did them in real life in World War II. I thought
0: that was oh very God, cool. What are- What a riveting story. I genuinely was on the edge of my seat. So good. What what an amazing person. Yeah. What was his name?
1: Forrest Frederick Edward Yeo Thomas. Amazing. All right. I want to hear your Welsh. All right. It's the funniest part of all languages.
0: All right, Rob. I have sent you two words. Ah, yep. That I would like you to try and pronounce. You may spell them out loud for the audience and then try and pronounce it. Oh, and then I'll tell you what it means once you've heard the correct. I know what the first one is, but
1: there is no chance I'm going to pronounce that. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I, I'm going to tell you. I'm going to the, the first one's a place, right? It's like a town or a village.
0: The really long one. Yeah, it's
1: yeah, it's a train station
0: in a, at a small village in Wales. Wow, that's
1: impossible to pronounce. But here goes: Landfair Pwll Gwyn Tizilio Gogog. Assume, Honestly, <laughs> not terrible. There's
0: A couple of bits you did really good. All right, let's play the correct pronunciation. Yeah, hit me up.
1: Plan by to push go get a to go go
0: go. I like the last bit. Go go goch. One yeah, more you time. Went, you weren't as close as I thought.
1: One more you want time. You Play it again. Yeah.
0: Plan by to push go
1: get a quindrobo. go go goch. The only bit that you can like easily follow along in the
0: text is go go goch at the end. The rest, I'm like, what? know. My mum can pronounce it and every time I try I say no, that, she playing can't. by a pooh, something 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 go go go. Yeah, she showed, it's her party trick. Ah, that's amazing. It's like that stupid mountain in uh, Iceland. Yeah, the
1: the smashed keyboard name. Yeah. All right. Second word. That's almost harder. Spell it out. All right, so we got a G, a W G W, the k- classic combo. D I H and then W with a little hat. Quidek. Interesting. No, quidichi. Oh, uh, I imagine it sounds- Quiddick. Yeah, thank you. So, that's- that's probably pretty close, right? Let's see. goody <laughs> <Me laughs> who?
0: who hoo goody who? This is silly language. It's one of my favourite- do, you know, do you know what it means? Uh, like, not at all. It means owl. It's the sound owls make, Rob. Goody-hoo. It's amazing. Ah,
1: that is amazing. On that, there's another one that I don't have a pronunciation for except in writing. Bugh Gorch Gortach. Hit me with the meaning. Which is spelled B U W C H G O C H G O T A, which is the Welsh word for ladybug, but it translates lit- literally into little red cow. <laughs> that is so adorable. <laughs> right? Isn't that amazing? And then very quickly. A couple of like silly Welsh sayings. Better we fell, cow piss, it's not piss. Your mum's gonna listen to this and just be like raging at our terrible pronunciation. So bear we fell
0: harshly. Yeah,
1: good. we fell, cow Pice. To boil like pea soup, which means someone that talks too much. I love these. And this is one that would have applied to you kind of in your couple of years post high school dreinag E D boched which I didn't even write pronunciation for, it's terrible. To keep a hedgehog in your pocket, which means to be cheap or tight. Really is, going after my personality there. Rob. <laughs> <it's> like strongly. <laughs> but I just love the way that they have like a saying that Like, it makes sense. Like, you would pull out your money, but there's a hedgehog there, so you don't.
0: So it it spikes your hand. You don't want to put your hand in your pocket.
1: Oh, man, it made me chuckle. Oh, and the last silly one was Tinu Nith Kachwen A Diben, which is also entirely wrong. Sorry, Sean and Ken. To pull a wasp's nest on your head. What do you think it means?
0: Is that like egg on your face?
1: No, there was another one for that that I didn't write down because it didn't sound as funny.
0: What is what is a wasp nest on the head? So you
1: you've picked up a wasp's nest and pulled it over your head. It's to do or say something that annoys not just the person you're talking to, but a whole bunch of people. So you've just like offended the whole room. So you've pulled a wasp nest on your head. <laughs> yeah, that would do it. Ah, oh, I'm sorry. I've got one more. I'm enjoying this Welsh language so much. Should should we really do this, Lloyd? Should we learn and and do a podcast in Welsh? Do a whole episode in Welsh? Oh my god! That no, would be a amazing. whole show, Lloyd. A whole series. Oh, a separate podcast. <laughs> yeah. Robin Lloyd's Welsh Adventure.
0: It'll be the same as this one. We'll just it'll be in Welsh. And we'll, it'll take we'll way we'll just, longer. We'll capture the 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 huge
1: Welsh speaking market. I'm excited. Okay, so the last one is Tinu Blauen O'Druin. No, I'm gonna try and do it more Welsh. Tinu Bleuen O'Druen. Not going to do that again. <laughs> that was terrible. Yep. I I don't even know how to. <laughs> to pull a hair from the nose. What do you reckon?
0: Oh, is that like, um, kick yourself in the head? Oh, God, I can't think think of the English saying.
1: (laughs) You're so Welsh, Lloyd.
0: Yeah, to spite the face, whatever that saying is, like, do something stupid to yourself.
1: Nah, it's, again, about annoying people. This is just to do something deliberately to annoy someone. So, like, to provoke someone, antagonize someone. To pull a hair from the nose. (laughs) Oh, it's from someone else's nose. I guess so. It's not specific. That is annoying. (laughs) Just, like, walk up. (laughs) I assume they all make that noise Alright, we have got to move on Unless you have any wonderful tidbits To slip in at
0: the end here, Lloyd We can't move on, Rob I'm going to play you three Welsh words really quickly And I want you to tell me what they mean
1: Ah, ah, yeah, okay, obviously That'll be easy, we'll just whip through this,
0: let's go Alright, here we go, first one (laughs) Mana mana monkey Mana mana monkey Play it for me one more time Mana mana monkey (laughs) It's so good.
1: It's going to be something bland, like hotel room key, just because it it's rhymes. It's
0: fairly, fairly bland. It means that guy over there. <laughs> All
1: right. What you got next? I almost nailed that one. Gwunk. Right. Gwunk. <laughs> Are you insulting there me, you Lloyd? Again. Yeah, do it. Quank. No, you're a gwunk. Gwunk. <laughs> I reckon it's an insult of sorts, and I'm not going to be specific, but I reckon it's an insult. Uh, him or her over there is a guunk mana mana monkey guunk. <laughs> that sounds right. Can you do it in your best Welsh accent?
0: mana mana monkey gwank. <laughs>
1: uh i'm 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 getting more excited by the Welsh podcast idea every second, although your uh, Welsh accent gu- is much better than mine.
0: Gwank means greed, so again, not as fun yeah, um all right, last one all right Moron. Rom- <laughs> Mo- so moron, straight up it's moron. even spelt
1: the same. Even spelt a- the same. It's not going to mean that at all. It's going to be like goat's cheese.
0: Ah, oh, like pretty, pretty close. It's <laughs> really? a food.
1: Uh, okay, so it was in in the the range of food. Uh, okay, all right. Now give me a clue. So I assume it's not a cheese. It's a vegetable. Potato. It is a carrot. Oh, so close. I was in the root vegetables.
0: If I'd have given you more time to guess, I think you would have narrowed it down pretty Maybe. effectively. So pass me that plate. Of boiled morons uh, Don't be a guank Don't be a carrot No, uh, Welsh Don't is- be greedy, we just went through this Welsh is hard Ah, oh, That was great Alright, that's enough of the Welsh People, uh, what yeah. are you Going to educate I us? I never
1: want to speak about them again
0: I'm done, yeah, I am yeah. disowning Wales um, forever oh, <laughs> di- <laughs> oh no, that's the opposite, uh, Wales forever <laughs> There we go. That's a Welsh fraying phrase I know. A Welsh fraying. You're, you're a Welshman. I can do Welsh. I can't do it. The you're more a Welshman. Welsh I learn, the more English I forget. You're a
1: Welshman fraying at the seams, Lloyd. Like mental breakdown. Oh, uh, yell it for me again in your most patriotic manner and then tell me what it means.
0: Come, right, Beth. Come over here, Beth, you moron. I got a bunch of <laughs> carrots. No, Rob. It means Welsh and proud. Ah, beautiful. Potentially pronounced incorrectly, but my mother will let me know.
1: I was going to say, I just imagine uh, Sean and Ken hanging out in their house, just like eating a pile of Welsh cakes, like crying as you embrace
0: your Welshness. Yeah, they are like 66% of our viewership too. So. <laughs> Annoyingly, they listen to it on the same device. Ah, so oh, come on. Resources. We need
1: multiple streams, Ken and Shan, Get all the devices. All right, Rob. Yep, that's enough. All right.
0: We're getting, <laughs> we're getting off track. Teach
1: me something else about the world. Oh, yeah, we've gone like... We're kind of back in the animal world, but also some, you know, political division and moral grey ground. So I'm just going to read you the title of the article that sparked this week's learning. A new bioscience company just raised $15 million to, inverted commas, revive woolly mammoths. And just
0: reading it feels problematic. Yeah, you sent me this and my initial... Reaction as a child was awesome, amazing. Woolly mammoths are amazing. Yeah. My second reaction was, why the fuck are we spending fifteen million dollars to revive a woolly mammoth?
1: Yeah. There's a lot to unpack, Lloyd. Doesn't quite feel right, but we're gonna we're gonna get into it. So basically, there's this new, uh, I guess you call them a bioscience company called, or aptly called, Colossal. Ooh. Their current main goal is to do a bunch of genetic engineering. And modify the DNA of your classic Asian elephant to create a hybrid, much like the long extinct, and we're talking like 10,000 years minimum extinct, but the much loved, and here we're talking Manny from Ice Age, Wooly Mammoth. Oh, great reference. Right? Uh, I think he's probably the
0: first Wooly Mammoth that I think of when I see the words Wooly Mammoth. Yeah, that's, it's funny you say that because I didn't think about Manny. But when I thought about extinct animals, obviously you think of the saber toothed tiger because they're amazing. I went yeah. straight to Diego. I yeah, skipped ah, Manny. I was struggling
1: to remember his name, Diego. So basically, it's a Harvard biologist, George Church, had this like, it was basically just like an idea, a dream to revive the woolly mammoth. That's how it reads anyway. And so he got together with a tech entrepreneur. And based on his title, I feel like I would hate the guy. <laughs> <laughs> like that sounds like a weedy job. Tech entrepreneur. Yeah, he sounds slimy. It sounds like you don't have a job. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm
0: uh, an entrepreneur, mom.
1: <laughs> CEO entrepreneur. <laughs> Jeffrey Bay <Bezos. Jeffrey>. is <laughs> Ben Lamb tech entrepreneur. And yeah, it initially just seems to have spawned as like a cool idea to see extinct animals again, which, like you say, as a child, that's a cool idea. So George is the brains, obviously, being a Harvard biologist. And he's also done heaps of previous successful work on GM, including like manipulating pig DNA so that pig organs could be transplanted into humans, writing lots of papers, being very smart. Nothing on Ben, Probably an asshole (laughs) Fuck Ben (laughs) They're talking about Not actually cloning Old DNA To revive an actual Woolly mammoth But 50 or so Genome changes In the Asian elephant DNA Because they share A common ancestor With our woolly mates So they've got Some common traits And then they make These genome changes To introduce Traits that are like that Of the woolly mammoth Such as More fat Shaggy hair Starting to sound A little bit like They're cloning Me (laughs) Wait a minute, small ears. So that's you as well. I don't have small ears. My ears are disproportionately large. Yeah, but on a small person, they're still small. Mm. Sorry, carry on. And some modern twists like removing, you know, woolly mammoths have them big, big old tusks, but they're going to try and remove the gene for tusks to reduce poaching in their new herd of woolly mammoths, which I guess is smart.
0: I guess it's smart, but also you shouldn't have to revive a woolly mammoth and then compensate for people who would think, "Oh, look, an extinct animal. I'm gonna fucking poach that." Yeah, it's it's like God, just it's the a, worst
1: upsetting that people are like that. And then queasily, he's quoted as calling it "editing" as well, which sounds wrong when you're talking mm. about DNA and animals and stuff.
0: Yeah, he's probably spends a lot of time in the software and is maybe the animal equivalent of like dehumanized to him. Yeah, it's maybe. much more science-y.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, based on what he said, the science part is super easy we've basically nailed it we can change the dna no worries but the difficult part is getting your you know newly coded dna and implanting it into a viable embryo and raising it into a woolly mammoth because even for just normal elephants trying to boost populations of endangered elephants or whatever no one's ever done a in vitro fertilization or harvested a viable embryo for the purposes of breeding which is interesting so wow. they're working on that But somehow they're still confident that they're going to have their first genetically modified woolly mammoth calves in four to six years.
0: I read that. It was very ambitious.
1: Hugely ambitious and also a little bit scary. And then the article closed off with this wonderful line. We may see the return of the woolly mammoth or at least the creation of a new fat hairy elephant in our (laughs) lifetimes. (laughs)
0: <laughs> I, I wouldn't be mad,
1: honestly. So that's the fact, and there's oh, there's lots to talk about. But I'm just going to plow straight on a little bit because I was like, okay, straight off the bat, that doesn't sound great. And even when I googled like the company's webpage, Colossal, uh, it's either Google or my computer's antivirus put that like question mark next to the webpage, like not sure if this is safe. And I was like, hmm, Ooh. not a, not a good sign. <laughs> Great start, guys Yeah, because I was like, well, they must have some reasoning in order for them to have just received $15 million in funding to do this Right So I, you know, delved a little into their website Tell me the why The why So my first impression was that they just, like, think they're awesome Their, like, goal is So I'm going to read it to you We are the de-extinction company We accept the challenge I already hate it Right? We accept the challenge on behalf of humanity, the animal kingdom And the universe at large They sound like terrible people
0: I really want to root for them
1: Yeah, like there must be some reason We're getting to it So like de-extinction, they've defined it as the functional application of advanced gene editing technology Aimed at rebuilding the DNA of lost megafauna and other creatures, and here's where we get into the why.
0: That's a good sentence, by the way.
1: Yeah, it is, right? So lost to megafauna and other creatures that had a measurably positive impact on our fragile ecosystem. And then they listed things like endangered animal backup, which actually sounds like a great idea to me. Cause oh, because
0: Asian elephants are endangered, right?
1: I'm actually not sure, but changing them into woolly mammoths isn't a backup for Asian for me, that reads as if they're also doing things like making a bank of endangered animal DNA. So oh, that
0: the, if that animal goes extinct, then they could yeah, theoretically like, bring it back. Yeah,
1: maybe the science isn't there yet, but that's one of their goals, which I think is not a bad idea because we've got these animals. We're working on reducing our you know, human footprint, but at the same time, some of them are still going to go extinct. so if we have their dna rather than having to take something else's dna and manipulate it to try and make something similar like they're doing with the woolly mammoth we've got this dna stored and we could bring this species back so that one's a bit interesting but then there's their whole de-extinction species diversification species replacement and species conservation so their idea at least related to the the big fat hairy elephants is to create a cold tolerant elephant mammoth hybrid and they're trying to rewild certain areas of the globe. So for example, putting woolly mammoths back into their original habitats. So cold tundras such as the Antarctic or Siberia is a good one where they would stir up ice locked surfaces, stomp out thin low oxygen trees and expose healthy carbon trapping grasses as part of how they feed and forage and stuff. And then they would restore the tundra's role as a climate protector and a balancer of greenhouse gases rather than just being an ice-locked wasteland
0: full of criminals was that a sudden commentary on the russian people at the end there anyway (laughs) (laughs) uh well that that's a very strong way yeah because so otherwise we're all going to be on mars yeah which like i'm into as well but i do
1: like earth so it it reads as if it's very legit And it appears to be run and backed by real scientists. And it's not just crazy tech money making people like Ben, the tech entrepreneur. And they've got heaps of links on their website to papers and other info from legitimate sources that I did not read. I just want to stress that. Didn't read any of their background. But it still feels a little bit like morally questionable, right?
0: I'm, I'm more on side than I was now that they have a big picture reason other than it being fun. And I, I will say that you, having said that, reminded me, I have a vague memory, and my wife, who was much smarter than me, will probably be able to tell it better. But oh, she is much smarter. There is a, a documentary about the Siberian permafrost and a group of people who, for years, have been trying to reconvert it into a thriving tundra. Oh. And they spoke on that documentary, this was years ago, about how woolly mammoths used to play that role, and they were trying to create machines or- by oh, really? hand do the same thing that they would do, like dig up the ground and, and create grass. Yeah. Um, so the idea is not necessarily new. They've been trying to do this. This is just like a way out of left field solution.
1: Yeah. Ah. that's super interesting. I didn't know that was a thing. Yeah. Yeah. So like there's that interesting way of going about it. Should we maybe be putting all of that funding and energy into reducing our impact, conserving what's left before we start reviving long dead species? That's kind of where my thoughts were. Yeah. I don't know. It's it's an interesting concept.
0: Your, your initial statement was right in that this is a moral gray area. Oh, yeah. So gray. And a part of me does wonder if the climate change solution was a nice marketing answer mm. to a couple of guys that think it's really cool that they can bring back a mammoth. And they were like, shit, we need a reason to bring back a mammoth. Yeah.
1: That's immediately where my thoughts went off. But then they haven't done it half-assed. They've like fully got behind their reasoning with- with the sciences.
0: Yeah. But I think I read that same initial article with the science guy is like super excited about the idea of DNA gene editing. And I don't want to point fingers because I'm sure that, you know, we're, we're science believers. But I wonder if the mammoth idea came before the saving the world idea. Yeah, George Church. We're on to you, you son of a bitch. And again, the
1: unintelligent podcast blows it wide open. Wide open. <laughs> That's right, Ken and Shan. You are the first and only to hear. <laughs> <laughs> so there's that. That's I thought that was very interesting. And then after I'd read it all and written it all down, I was like, it's interesting. But apart from Shaggy Boys and Fat Hairy Elephants, it's not the funniest. So I had to think about other gene editing
0: things. Well, before oh, we're going straight Jurassic Park. <laughs> straight Jurassic Park. <laughs> Uh, and
1: all I've written is there are multiple movies demonstrating how this is not a good idea. So,
0: what you're telling me is that these woolly mammoths are going to break out of the tundra and they're going to cause mayhem in northern Russia. But if you had herds, I mean, they're herd
1: animals, right? They have to live in herds, rampaging around the tundra. Like, what are you going to do if they wander into a village and, ah, oh, they don't have big tusks. They're probably quite cuddly.
0: I don't think elephants rampage. Or I think there are, like, bull elephants that get that- they, These like, are snap, not- I think- Elephants, Lloyd. But they are. They, you know. We're saying they're mammoths, but they're not. They're elephants that have been made fluffy and fatter. <laughs> so fat. I do have a funny mammoth fact oh, that is good, also good.
1: interesting. Is it related to the only funny mammal we know many from Ice Age?
0: Uh, It involves an Ice Age. Oh, all right. Hit me. So you, you mentioned before that, and it's... It's widely accepted that mammoths went extinct around 10,000 years ago. Yes. In my notes, in big capital letters, I have, or did they? <laughs>
1: oh, no. Uh, you could do that more scary. Or did
0: they? Oh, I don't
1: know, Lloyd. Did they? No. <laughs> oh, wait. Oh, no, that is a surprising answer.
0: They didn't. They didn't. This blew my mind. Have you got Mammoths. One? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this, this George Church fella. Idiot. I've had a mammoth this whole time. Damn it, George! There is an island called Wrangel Island in Russia, <laughs> and during the Ice Age, where all the mammoths, well, they don't they don't go extinct like overnight. But mm. during that extinction period, mm-hmm. they migrated to this area called Wrangel Island, and then right. as the ice receded, they were trapped on the island. Oh, so now, woolly mammoths they went extinct ten thousand years ago. These mammoths on this island survived for six thousand more years. No, they did not. Yes. What? But there was only like a thousand of them, maybe Uh a little more. So after 6,000 years, they were all stunted and inbred and tiny and pathetic. (laughs) And they lost the use of their noses and they basically inbred themselves to extinction. Inbred themselves straight to death. 6,000 years though. Yeah, that's crazy. That's 2000 BC. That's like we had cities. Like there's fairly substantial human activity happening around then. And also a bunch of mammoths. On an island,
1: very Jurassic Park, except that they killed themselves instead of everybody else.
0: Well, there was no one to kill. <laughs> <laughs> I suppose. The, the scientist that I was reading who, I don't know if she discovered them or, or it was just studying their stunted forms, mm. said that the island is a beautiful wildflower-covered island. But oh. the sad thing is that their noses didn't work and they couldn't smell any
1: <laughs> of them. <laughs> oh, no.
0: <laughs> Poor mammoths.
1: So, is it like a um, massive yeah. fossil- stunted mammoth graveyard on this island
0: yeah i think it it just i mean because it's so cold Mm. and they were so confined that it's just sort of preserved generations of mammoths on this island i don't know if it's tidy but on this island
1: that's excellent i did not find that out and i am thrilled great job
0: yeah that's the best thing i discovered that's my contribution is peaked yeah let's wrap it up (laughs) (laughs) uh that
1: yeah that's awesome so, I got nothing else on mammals, but I've got a bit on Jurassic
0: Park. Everyone loves dinosaurs. I just finished a book on dinosaurs. I'm hot. Let's go. Let's do it. <laughs> Unrelated facts. Take a jumper off. <laughs> I, I'm naked, so don't worry about it. <laughs> okay,
1: good. Super hot. I always
0: podcast naked.
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. So, so do I. Not true. So, A, don't do genetic modification of extinct animals. It
0: doesn't work. But that being said, Rob, if someone did it, If they opened a Jurassic Park and they sold tickets, would you go? Of course, Lloyd. Yes, okay, good. Me too. I'd be in a heartbeat. I'd be in the first plane over. If only to feature
1: in a movie where I died, it'd be worth it.
0: Yeah. Oh, I'd get my will sorted, but I'd be there. (laughs) Oh, yeah.
1: (laughs) This is definitely going to go wrong, but I can't not go.
0: Yeah. And I'm going to leave it all to my wife because I know she's smart enough not to go. So I'm going to be there on my own. It'll be me and you, front row, all giddy and excited (laughs) as we get eaten by something. Worth it. All right, so Jurassic
1: Park in itself. Actually quite a groundbreaking movie, the first one. I think it was released in 93 or 94. three, of-
0: year of my birth. Ooh,
1: don't care. Jurassic Park's way more important. <laughs> <laughs> Huge breakthrough in, like, special effects. So they used a combination of go motion, which is, like, kind of like a stop motion, so with small models. Some of the very first CGI, so some of the, like, wide shots of dinosaurs walking across fields or whatever is some of the first proper CGI used in a film. And then obviously the one that a lot of people focus on is on is the full-on like animatronics and puppets. They had like puppet heads or puppet parts of bodies where the rest of the body would be behind a tree or something that are operated by puppeteers or by animatronics, which is a whole exciting thing in itself. I think they won a bunch of Oscars for it as well It's for the special effects.
0: Yeah, I'm thinking of the scene where the two kids are like pushing the glass up As the T-Rex is like trying to get in the car. Yeah. I think that was a huge animatronic dinosaur, right?
1: Yeah. They had a few like bits of dinosaurs for certain scenes and they did actually have a couple of full puppet or model dinosaurs. And I think they had one of the T-Rexes, which is pretty cool. Really cool. Yeah. The movie itself, directed by Steven Spielberg, he actually worked- with the author of the original book. So, obviously, Jurassic Park is based on a book by Michael Crichton. Yep. For some reason, Spielberg and Crichton were working on the show ER. So, Crichton must have also been like a screenwriter. He, he,
0: I think he wrote that too. Yeah, right.
1: There you go. Yeah. So, they were working on the set of that and they were just having a chat and Spielberg was like, what's, what's your next book going to be about? And Crichton just kind of pitched him the idea for Jurassic Park. And the way that I read it, Stephen, like is so excited by it, he immediately gets up and gets Universal Studios to buy the rights to the movie for the book that hasn't been written yet because he just wanted to make make the movie so bad. And then Crichton wrote the book and the screenplay and they got on with it. So I thought that was quite cool.
0: I think Steven Spielberg must have a a really great gut because that's not the first time I've heard him make a snap judgment call like that. I heard him in a story say that he met... Arnold Schwarzenegger for, for coffee. Mm. It's like Hollywood people just get, just hang up. out. Yeah. And he was talking about Terminator and they had an actor in mind and they asked Arnie like, Oh, how would like, what do you think about like a sort of an emotionless robot? Like how would you play that? And during coffee, Steven Spielberg was like, scratch that. You're it. You're the guy. You're hired. Yeah. You're in do the movie. And then it's like one of the most iconic movies of all time. So I think he must just like trust his gut.
1: Yeah, so good. And I'm pretty sure one of the guys that worked on the like the cyborg robot models and shots for Terminator was involved in the animatronics for Jurassic Park as well. That's awesome. Yeah. A couple of fun other tidbits. The CEO of InGen, which is like the evil genetically modifying company, weird parallels to George Church and Colossal, um, John Hammond. Evil George Church. Yeah. Is played by Richard. Attenborough
0: yeah that's Sir David's
1: brother right yeah I just immediately pictured David Attenborough and I was like surely not because it said he came out of retirement to do the role and I was like he's still working slash almost dead Uh, but yeah his brother who is an actor and a screenwriter and stuff so I thought that was quite cool and then I also had a little look at the science of Jurassic Park
0: did some fact checking for them
1: yeah I was like hmm is this real Could this have happened? Uh, So, the answer is no. (laughs) No one's actually ever found any dinosaur DNA. So, to revive an extinct species, you would need the whole whole genome. And no one's even found a little bit of dinosaur DNA. So, that bit is purely science fiction, but- i love the way they did it, it was yeah like in, blood in a mosquito preserved in something yeah
0: in amber it was a really cool idea mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. in the book i read the fiction book written by a very successful paleontologist wrote about how incredibly rare it is and they i think he said he's found one dinosaur fossil that has flesh still on the bones and it's because oh. it was killed and buried so quickly yeah. that the flesh couldn't rot properly but even that is just like fossilized flesh it's not really
1: not getting a lot out of it so the movie could never have happened at this stage but some of the stuff they did with the actual dinosaurs was kind of the best knowledge at the time given this is almost 30 years ago now and so like the way the dinosaurs moved best approximations of dinosaur sound and all of that stuff is kind of as accurate as they could get it without ruining the drama of the show so There are a few things that are not correct. So some of the key, I'm going to call them characters, the Velociraptors. The actual Velociraptor dinosaur is just like this cute little feathery scamp who's got sharp teeth and claws. But they obviously want it to be a big scary predator. Now, I don't know if this is 100% true, but the historical accuracy and the special effects team were getting really anxious that we were calling them Velociraptors, but portraying them as something entirely different to the actual Velociraptor and people were going to get upset at them. And they didn't want to be called out on it. But apparently. During filming of the show, of the show, of the movie, a new raptor was like discovered, like first discovery in paleontology at the same time. And it was called the Utah Raptor. I assume it was discovered in one of those like big dinosaur basins in Utah. And it it was a raptor and it was a much closer fit to what they were going for. It was larger, had bigger claws, less feathers, more scary. Like at the same time as they were trying to portray that kind of dinosaur.
0: How like unbelievable is that? That's amazing. That's I mean they must have been chuffed to bits. Yeah, thrilled. <laughs> yeah. So that's pretty cool. Yeah, on the feathers thing, the book I read by his name is Stephen Brusatte, probably Bruce. a wrong pronunciation. Paleontologist. Uh, I, it's actually was...
1: Stephen Bruschetta. <laughs> Don't
0: know. He was one of two paleontologists called in when they found a complete skeleton in China. Oh, that completely changed the landscape of dinosaur knowledge and paleontology. In mm. that they discovered that dinosaurs had feathers. He oh. was the guy that I they studied that skeleton. That's cool. Also, it was interesting in that it's not feathers in what we see on on a duck or a chicken, <laughs> but it's like really long, thin, almost like thick fur. Like if you can imagine oh. how coarse and thick like bear fur is. Yeah, yeah, and even like. They're thinking, like, T-Rexes also had this stuff on them. Yeah, they're so thinking, like... So, T-Rex most still dinosaurs. had like, the muscle and the scales, but their, like, back was covered in this, like, coarse, thick fur feather. Yeah, so strange.
1: I love those discoveries where they discover one fossil that changes the whole field of that science, like... It's way so cool. Yeah, way back when they started, like, they made one discovery where lots of original skeletons they'd erected, like, standing very vertical on their hind legs... And then they made a series of discoveries so they all look a bit more like we actually see them portrayed now, where the back legs and their bodies are more horizontal with the tails out the back for balance. Like that original discovery, that'd be so cool.
0: Yeah, well, I didn't realize how much, I guess my naivety, I picture them finding a skeleton and you just kind of dig out a skeleton, but often they'll just find like a clump of bones that might be like a femur and a shoulder blade, Mm -hmm. and then they just use the paleontology skills to kind of to the best of their understanding create a dinosaur around that go
1: go gadget paleontology skills (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah exactly call on bone restructuring (laughs) anyway a couple other cute little tidbit facts from the jurassic park movies you know in the original one the first t-rex approach where the water ripples like super, oh, great super famous, scene. yeah, super famous shot inspired by Earth, Wind and Fire.
0: No way. <laughs>
1: yeah, apparently, Captain Spielberg's in his car on the way to set or something, and he's listening to Earth, Wind and Fire, and he noticed how the bass in one of their songs made his coffee ripple like that, and it was just like a light bulb moment. Ends up in the film.
0: That's uh,
1: so good, ridiculous. And then the last one, one of the uh, scientific inaccuracies. Again, uh, the first appearance of the T Rex. You know how they stand very still in front of him, and he can't see them. Yeah, T. Rexes actually have great vision, so he would have just killed everyone, (laughs) torn them all to shreds at the beginning of the movie. End of movie.
0: (laughs) Wow, look at these, look at these morons or carrots, just standing here waiting for me to eat them. (laughs) What
1: a bunch of delicious carrots! (laughs) But I think at the time it was not confirmed whether they relied. It was thought that they relied mostly on smell and potentially needed to see movement for their vision to work, but later confirms that, no, actually, they could see real good. You know,
0: if you have Steven Spielberg's movie-making ability, take the creative license.
1: Yeah, definitely. That is potentially all we have time for on today's episode, Lloyd.
0: It was a good episode, Rob.
1: Yeah, and, like, unfortunately, felt like it was possibly leaning towards intelligent it's on the intelligent side of the intelligent to unintelligent scale
0: we'll have to bring it back again next week yeah i'm
1: gonna come up with something real stupid yeah i'm just gonna get my fact wrong (laughs) all about everything we talked about today is entirely incorrect now that's what i call unintelligent
0: (laughs) just gonna totally mess it up on purpose
1: awesome episode four podcast down the drain (laughs) well thanks for joining us hope you enjoyed our uh Unintelligent chat about various intelligent things. I learned so much today, but I laughed as genuinely, well.
0: Genuinely, genuinely, genuinely learned some things. And I'm really, I'm really chuffed that we can make a podcast where I'm learning and laughing together. <laughs> together. Good. If you want to get in touch with us, you can reach us on our Twitter page, which is at the UCS pod, or you can email us at the UCS podcast at gmail.com. And remember, complaints only. Yeah, we don't want positive feedback. This is the Unintelligent
1: Podcast. Just tell us how bad we are and we'll keep going. Agreed. Thanks for joining us. Have a learned but mostly unintelligent week.
0: Cheerio.